This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. This episode is brought to you by Lola V. Lola V is an award-winning hair care line by none other than Jennifer Aniston. They offer clean, plant-powered products for every hair type and texture. I just did my whole hair care routine with all the products the other night, and I am obsessed. Along with incredible shampoo and conditioner, they have an intensive repair treatment that you can use once a week. They also have a lightweight hair oil. There's a leave-in treatment and there's also a glossing detangler, which I need because lately I want to do my hair in like a slicked back look, but my hair's too frizzy. Get 15% off Lola V with the code MOMROOM at www.lolav.com slash MOMROOM and Lola V is L-O-L-A-V-I-E. Ah, mmm, the first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Welcome to the Mom Room Podcast. My name is Renee Rena, and I am definitely the mom friend you have always wanted. This episode is sponsored by The Latte Co. If you follow me on social media, you'll know that I make Milo smoothies all the time and I'm always putting a powder in them. That powder is created by The Latte Co. It is 100% plant-based. They have a baby latte, which is for 12 months and up, and then a kiddo latte, which is what Milo is using right now, which is for 24 months and up. You can put the powder in just water, you can put it in smoothies, you can even throw it in baking. It's made with organic, whole food ingredients, it contains more calcium than cow's milk, has a huge range of vitamins and minerals, it is gluten-free, dairy-free, soy-free, and it is nut-free. I'll just read off some of the ingredients here. So hemp hearts, pea protein powder, grinded flax seeds, beetroot, green cabbage, kale, broccoli, tomato, pumpkin. I mean, it goes on and on. I consider this stuff my secret weapon and it's so nice to give Milo a smoothie that has this powder in it and I know that he's getting a bunch of nutrition. The awesome people at The Latte Co. would like to give you guys 10% off and free shipping on your first order with the promo code THEMOMROOM10. You can find the link in the episode notes or you can simply go to thelatteco.com. I cannot recommend this stuff enough. So remember, it is promo code THEMOMROOM10 for a 10% discount and free shipping. www.thelatteco.com Good. Alrighty. Um, so today I am speaking with, oh, is your last name Pedix or yep. Pedix? Pedix? Pedix. Okay. Yep. All right. So today I'm speaking with Laura Pedix. Is that what I said? Yeah. <laughs> I, just, I just questioned myself again. I was like, which one did she <laughs> say? It's okay. Right? You know, our priest uh, announces as Mr. and Mrs. Petit. Like he made it like a French sounding last name. And I, I love it. It's Pedix. 
Uh, okay. So she is a pediatric occupational therapist and she specializes in sensory sensitivity. Um, she helps parents understand their child's sensory behaviors and how to support them. This should be a good conversation because I'm not familiar with this at all. So when you reached out to me about this topic, I was like, yes, let's talk about this. Um, because I have had parents on social media message me about this topic, but I knew nothing about it. Yeah. And it seems to be fairly common. Yeah. So before we get into that, just tell us a little bit about yourself, your training, your family, and kind of what you help clients with. Sure. So I'm Laura. I am a pediatric occupational therapist. And when I was working in the clinic pre-COVID, I worked in a an outpatient clinic, a private-based clinic in California, and I specialized in children ages 3 to 12. And the clinic that we worked in, um, that I worked in, was it was in more of an affluent neighborhood. And so a lot of the parents, uh, the clients that came to me were clients who um, had to pay out of pocket. And so parents, it was because that their child couldn't qualify for services either through the school or through insurance because they didn't check enough boxes, so to speak. So I think that's where a lot of kids with sensory processing disorder get, they kind of slip through the cracks because it's such um, not, not a well-known or even well-accepted diagnosis, to be quite frank, in a lot of the medical world, um, which is something we're working on. But so I worked with more of like the mild cases, but a lot of kids who had sensory processing challenges alone. So meaning it wasn't part of bigger diagnoses. I did work with some kids with autism and ADHD and some other diagnoses, but I really worked with them on how they can best function at home and at school. So pediatric OTs work on fine motor skills, gross motor skills, um, sensory processing skills. And what a lot of people I think don't realize is that sensory processing skills really is the, the important foundation that helps develop gross and fine motor skills. So a lot mm. of the time I will get referral for handwriting challenges or gross motor challenges. Um, and when we dig deeper and I do the assessment, there's really some underlying like underdeveloped sensory um, areas that need to be addressed prior to that. So sensory processing is a really big, big foundational piece of the pyramid uh, when we're talking about child development. So that's where I worked at in the clinic. I have a daughter who is three and a half years old. Her name's Liliana and she has sensory processing disorder and anxiety. And we are working through that daily. And I think I'm self-diagnosed anxiety too. So apple tree, mm. you know, <laughs> yeah, for sure. So is sensory processing disorder is it like a range? So if someone's diagnosed with that, they must meet certain criteria. Like I'm just thinking like a psychologist to, to have that diagnosis, but are there kids that struggle with just like sensory issues, but don't necessarily have a diagnosis? Yeah. So that's exactly it. So technically, uh, the DSM, you know, I think we're on DSM five SPD sensory processing disorder is not a standalone diagnosis right now. Mm. Um, it's under the umbrella of autism or ADHD and anxiety. And I think there might be one more that I'm missing, but it's not a standalone thing. So if a child is showing sensory processing challenges, yet the diagnosing clinician doesn't think this kid doesn't have autism They're They don't have anxiety. They don't have ADHD. Then they'll just say, it's a phase or it's a behavioral issue or it's a parenting issue. There's like a whole slew of 
reasons that um, a child with just SPD may slip through the cracks. And mm. yes, it is, it is a spectrum. There is, there are some like mild sensory processing challenges, and there are some more dysfunctional, extremely impactful sensory processing disorder type things. And we really differentiate it more as like a sensory quirk and more of a disorder when you need intervention. And really the difference is when like most um, cognitive and psychological uh, disorders and uh, diagnoses is when it really impacts your your daily functioning, right? When it starts impacting your ability. If we're, when we're talking about a child, their things that are most important to them in their daily life are school, social life, and like things at home, like taking baths, eating, getting dressed, all of those things. So what makes it really tricky is when you have kids with sensory quirks, like if we're talking about even just adults, right? I don't like mushrooms. I am so over responsive. I'm very sensitive to um, movement. Like I hate loopy rides. I don't know about you, but some people love them. Yeah. Some people I could, completely I could, hate them. Sometimes I like them. Sometimes not so much. Yeah. There's some things that we love a lot. There's some things that we cannot stand, but it doesn't, I don't have a panic attack at a, in front of a roller coaster. I, it doesn't stop me from going to theme parks for a friend's birthday party. You know, I, I won't vomit at the sight of mushrooms. I might mm. just like casually peel them off my, my pizza, right? It doesn't impact me to the point where it's like prohibiting me from functioning in daily life. So that's really the difference between a sensory quirk and sensory processing disorder. You mentioned that it's part of the DSM, which I, I didn't realize that, but what are some of the, like in order for someone to be diagnosed with that, what are some of the criteria that they would have to meet? Yeah. So, so it's not standalone. So there's not really criteria for it, but they would show. So it's part of, when I say it's part of, it would be like under autism, they might say a child with autism is more likely to experience signs of sensory processing disorder. Mm -hmm. And those include, there's three main profiles or thresholds for sensory processing disorder related to sensory modulation. These are a lot of really big clinical words if parents are listening, but there's three main profiles um, that, that are, that could be focused on. And one of them is being over-responsive. And that's what I specialize in the sensory sensitivity. These are kids who have a small sensory cup. So any input and input can be sights, smells, tastes, feelings, um, sounds, movements, any of those inputs throughout your day kind of start filling up your sensory cup. And when, if you have a small cup, like my daughter, like I swear she has like a thimble sized cup. It's so easy. Like it's two, like two things you sneeze and she's like done over responsive for the day. Um, If you have a small sensory cup, a low threshold, you are over responsive. That means that you respond to input more often than someone else. So like for you or I, like we'd be talking or watching TV and we think it's fine, but a child who is over responsive with a low threshold or sensory sensitive might think it's, that's too loud. And we're like, what are you talking about? That's not too loud. Same thing with sight. So something thinks something's too bright. Same thing with um, taste and textures, especially clothes. So a lot of the simple things, Mm -hmm. like how can you feel the seam in your sock? Like it's fine. There's nothing there. Like just, just deal with it. Right. It's not a big deal. You can't even feel the difference between the black sock and the white sock, Yeah, but they can, they're so hyper aware and focused. That's just one piece of sensory processing challenges. 
And then there's two other profiles. One on the other side of the spectrum is the uh, sensory seekers. These kids have big cups with like a hole in the cup. You cannot satiate their need for input. These are the kids that move super fast, super hard. They love loud sounds. They'll like roll around in the mud. They just cannot get enough of things. They get mislabeled or misunderstood as um as like behavior, like bad kids. Cause they often can just be like, they'll squeeze so hard and they'll run so fast that they hit another kid on accident. They just have such low body awareness. Hmm. Um, and they have a really hard time controlling that need for input. So they will like touch everything. And like, even though you're like, don't touch it, stop touching, you know? So they can't get enough. So that's like a whole other size cup. That's, and it's just like the more that you feed into it, the more that they need more, they are like the energizer bunny. <sighs> Um, and then the middle of the spectrum sort of is they also have a big, uh, cup, a big sensory cup. These are called under responders, but instead of seeking the input, these kids are more sedentary. They, they sometimes appear lazy or withdrawn. They're kind of slower to, to warm up and they just don't prefer to move or get sensory input, even though that their body needs more than typical, than neurotypical people, than people who have an average size cup. They are not registering the input as uh, easily as you or I would, and they need more, but they don't know it. Like the seekers who need more and they seek it out, these under responders need more to be alert, to focus, to participate in daily things, but they need kind of like parents to be like, wake up, like, let's move. Like some, you'll, you'll find parents being like snapping and saying like, come on, let's get going. Like they seem like they're always tired, mm. but they get enough sleep and it's not a sleep thing. It's just their body just needs a little bit more sensory input to wake up. So it takes, it's harder to kind of motivate these kids. I assume that a lot of these children get labeled as like you were saying, bad behavior, because I feel like the ones who are sensitive to sensory input, you would just assume that they're being difficult, you know? Absolutely. Yep. I have like a mislabeled thing for each of them. So like the seekers often get misunderstood as, you know, the bad kids, the ones who don't listen, the ones who are always going to like the principal's office or go take a time out. You're not listening. You're standing, sit down in your seat, just sit still. Like those kids I'm thinking of in the classroom, right? When it's, they can really stand out. The, um, the avoiders, the kids with the, the sensory sensitivity, the small sensory cup, like my daughter, yeah, they get mislabeled as, oh, they're just shy or, The parents get blamed as uh, like spoiling them because we're trying to listen. Like that's something Mm. like you should never force a, you should never force a child to do anything. Like, let's just give that out there. But especially a child with sensory sensitivity, the act of, even if it's out of like tough love of like, you'll get used to it. Just, you'll get used to the loud sound, just sit there. Right. And then the parents that, you know, listen to their child's sensory um, needs and we kind of don't want to force it. We don't want to set them off into fight or flight mode. Then we kind of get looked at as you're spoiling them. Like you're not challenging them enough, or you're just giving in to what they don't like. Like they don't want to wear socks. So I don't let them wear socks. So they, yeah, you're like, you're saying they get away with a lot of things. And then Mm -hmm. the middle one, the under responders, they get mislabeled as like lazy or like sluggish or that it's not really something that they can, um, figure like fix on their own without sensory input. This episode is brought to you by Magic Spoon. You guys know I have been very intentional with what we've been eating lately. I'm looking at protein, I'm looking at sugar content, and avoiding things like artificial ingredients or colorings. 
Milo used to always want pancakes or waffles in the mornings, and now he is getting into cereal, and I'm so excited because Magic Spoon is the perfect option. Their variety pack has four flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and peanut butter. They have zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and only four to five grams of carbs per serving. They're made with wholesome ingredients, no artificial flavors or dyes, and I'm just so happy that he's getting a good amount of protein before he goes off to school. And it's a great snack for me and my husband too, because 13 to 14 grams of protein in the cereal, now you add a high protein milk, you're set. That is such a high protein snack or meal. I should also mention that it is gluten-free, grain-free, and soy-free. So go to magicspoon.com slash momroom to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our promo code momroom at checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. So try a delicious bowl of Magic Spoon cereal today at magicspoon.com slash momroom and use the code momroom to save $5. Thank you, Magic Spoon, for sponsoring this episode. This episode is brought to you by Little Spoon. It is 2024. As busy parents, it's hard to completely overhaul our lives, but what we can do is make small changes that will make our lives easier. And that is where Little Spoon comes in. Their goal is to make keeping your kid healthy feel like the easiest part of your day so that you can cut through all the drama of mealtime. Little Spoon offers baby blends, biteables, and plates. So baby blends is fresh, organic baby food. They have single ingredients, but also multi-textured purees to take the stress out of starting solids. Biteables make the transition to finger foods easy because they are cut perfectly to size, which promotes self-feeding. And of course, all the Biteables are healthy, balanced, and free of artificial junk. And then there are plates for your toddlers and your bigger kids. They are meals that are free of all the bad stuff. They taste amazing. Even the pickiest eaters will love them. They have things like hidden veggie mac and cheese, chicken nuggets, and adventurous things like pot stickers, gnocchi, and more. Little Spoon also has smoothies and build-it-yourself lunches. Did I mention it all comes right to your door? It is super flexible, so easy, and everything stores right in the fridge and freezer. You can pick up the menu and change up what you order every single time. The price is right. The quality is unmatched. You and your kids will love it. It's a huge win-win for your family. Simplify your kids' mealtime with 30% off your first order. Go to littlespoon.com slash momroom and enter our code momroom at checkout to get 30% off your first Little Spoon order. Is there a way, so I'm just thinking about like Milo hates putting on his socks. As soon as he sees them, he starts yelling, no socks, no socks. It's wild. Is there a way, so if parents are listening to this and they're like, oh, maybe my child has some kind of sensory something, how do you differentiate it from a child that maybe is just being difficult or he's like associating the socks with putting on his boots and going outside and he doesn't want to go outside versus yeah, like a transitional someone, thing, yeah, right? Yeah, versus someone that actually has a sensory issue. Like, are there things yeah. to look for? Yeah. And so it, it definitely depends per child, but, but generally speaking, 
for some kids who are sensory sensitive and there are things that they have to wear or have to do to conform to social norms. Like you can't go outside naked. You can't go in the snow. Like there's things that you can't do that you have to, they're non-negotiable things that they have to do. I look out for like, how long does the meltdown last? Because also when you're talking about Milo's age, like a two-year-old, there's all of the stuff that comes with being a toddler and being like, I don't want to do this. It's my body. I don't want to. There's just like the whole, the whole part of just being a toddler that kind of complicates everything. Like independence. Uh, Exactly. So that's what makes it really hard. But um, I mean, like my daughter's meltdowns, when I would get her through the sensory trigger or whatever she did, there's like a, like a hangover. She would be like irritable after, like, even if I took the sock off, she just is dysregulated. That constant state of dysregulation, her nervous system is still off from feeling the sock or from us arguing about it, or that like increase in anxiety and alertness and arousal level that was happening in her body. There's kind of like a hangover and she will have some effect later or right after that will last long. Whereas if it's a child who's just asserting his control or has a sensory quirk, like something he dislikes, like when you take the sock off or once it's on, like he's fine. Mm. And like, there's no lasting effect after generally speaking. I also look for things like how, if there's other patterns that fit with that. So like, if he dislikes socks, like are there other clothes that he says are itchy or if he has other sensory patterns that he seems sensitive to if he's just complaining like the one thing ever that's really really hard for him is just socks and everything else is fine probably maybe just a sensory quirk um but that's you know that's not like an all that's not like a complete like all or nothing statement your child could have sensory challenges um that looks different but in general it's more of like how long lasting is the dysregulating effect like moving beyond just the refusal of trying it once you get it on what does it look like after that yeah see and i yeah i think he's just cuz when you explain it like that he calms down right away after if we take yeah. them off or as soon as we actually get them on, he's fine. It's yeah, just like, yeah. he doesn't want us doing the act of putting them on. And then I always try and relate it to me. I never wear socks in the house. I don't like wearing socks either. Yeah. So if I'm a toddler that doesn't know how to express myself or, you know, like I don't understand that this is something that I have to do right now and I need to put on socks, then maybe I would have that same behavior, right? For sure. And that's what I'm always telling parents. And even when I talked to, when I used to uh, help teachers in the classroom work with these kids, uh, what's functional for one child in one environment may not be functional for another child in another environment. So kids, like I live in Southern California, it was 80 degrees yesterday, 89 degrees yesterday. Oh, wow. Uh, so hot. Like you can get away in, in Southern California without ever having to wear socks. So it's yeah. not something to battle over. Like maybe they will have a hard time if they wanted to play soccer or sports, you know, and there's other things that make it that they would need to, but complete, like being able to say that you don't need it. Um, it's functional for kids here. Same thing in the classroom. Like there are some classrooms where it's like a Montessori type classroom where kids can get up and move around and have lots mm-hmm. of jobs. And so a seeker might be able to be around that and it's functional for them to get up and move and fidget. But if you put that same child in like a more traditional old school, private school classroom where everyone's like sitting at a desk, like straight facing the teacher, and no, you're not allowed to like get up out of your chair. And that seeker is now getting up and moving around. That would be considered like dysfunctional in that environment. And then yeah. that kid would stand out there. So it really, de- it's not just the child or the individual in a vacuum. It's really taking in the context, the environment, what's going on around them. And, and if that's really impacting their participation 
in that environment with those people that warrants whether or not they need a little bit more support or intervention. We're talking about sensory sensitivity, but then you have, you know, kids that learn in a different way. The education system is just, it's one way and that's it. So you, if you don't thrive in this specific environment, then, oh, well, too bad. You're going to be labeled as having behaviors or having, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I always, and then it turns into like a whole like social thing too, with friends as you get older and like, you know, you have a hard time with reading or whatever it is that you're doing. And you start noticing like, you know, when they hang like art projects in the classroom and then like yours might have a harder time really understanding the instructions to do it. Or maybe there's fine motor challenges, or you couldn't focus because you're so over responsive to the sound of like the fluorescent lights that buzzing. There are some kids who can't stand that sound. And then it impacts the way that they color a paper because they're just so bombarded with all of the input that they can't focus. And then, yeah, then you hang the art up and it's like why does mine look different and everyone else's right there's so much to it that's why it's that's why it's so important for me to educate people that don't understand sensory processing because it's such a not well-known thing right now that like I'm always of the mindset that I would rather rule out sensory processing challenges than just wave them off and say it's probably nothing they probably just need some discipline at home or whatever it is I would much rather rule this out and I would much rather over screen like way too many kids than let them slip through the cracks yeah that's you know that's that's a big thing in like systems and institutional challenges and things like that I always think about how as parents, we're so focused on our own children and that's all we really know really well. And so I think it's so important for parents to hear conversations like this and understand these different issues because, you know, when you see someone in the grocery store and their kid is acting out, you know, I think we're so quick to judge and we're so quick to assume that their child must be just like our, our children and you know that the parents feel the same way that we feel but it's not the case there's so many things going on yeah there's so many things that uh that sensory behaviors really look like specifically if we're talking about sensory sensitivities like there's aggression that's related to it and I'll talk I have a story about that that I think might be a light bulb for a lot of parents um aggression there's the crying there's screaming there's you know there's running away Um, even kids have a hard time focusing because they're so over responsive to this stuff. And all of that, just, if you just look at that, that looks like quote behavior, Mm. right? And so that's why there's a lot of debate about from parents who, you know, it's not their fault. They don't understand the sensory world like we're talking about, but they know they hear sensory and they're like, is it sensory or is it behavior? Which one is it? Is my, but I love shifting the perspective that sensory is behavior because the behavior is just hitting. Mm. What parents want to know is, are they hitting because they're triggered by something sensory related or are they hitting because something else is going on? Whatever this other cloud is, whether it's communication gap or they need attention or they're having a hard time sharing, or maybe there's like a psychological component. Maybe they're upset about something that happened earlier and they're taking that with their sibling, right? There's so many other reasons it could be related to sensory because it's the fight or flight mode. It's that instinct to survive. I hear a loud sound. My instinct is to hit. I don't care who's next to me. I'm going to hit, but the teacher doesn't understand what's going on. Cause there's so many kids going around and they didn't realize that the sound of the squeaky chair scooting on the floor startled me. So I hit my neighbor. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it's a behavior hitting is behavior. And we know behavior is just our body's way of communicating that we're dysregulated or we need something or we want something. So I think that when parents ask, 
is it sensory? Is it behavior? They're asking, why is my child hitting? Is it because it's something that they're, they're sensitive to, or is it because they need something else? Or is it because I need to, you know, help them build this skill? But my example about that is I had a child who was so, uh, I had a client who was so over-responsive to imposed touch. When we're talking about the touch system, you could be sensitive to messy play, like my daughter, like she had a hard time Play-Doh, finger paint, all of the like preschool crafts she had a really hard time with. But there's also um, imposed touch, which a lot of kids are sensitive to, meaning like hugs or things that are just out of their control. Like when you're walking next to someone in a jacket, like brushes against your arm. It's things that are out of your control that are done onto your body. A lot of grooming activities, like brushing your hair, like that's imposed touch, Mm -hmm. right? All of that is stuff that's outside of your control. Um, I had a client who was so over-responsive to touch and I was just in the clinic. We were like walking from the clinic gym to like the other room. And I just like kind of barely had my hand on his shoulder, kind of guiding him along the way. And he immediately like turned around and like scratched my, um, my arm. And we both were like, I was like, oh, and he said, I'm sorry. He's like, I I don't know why I did that. Like he like did not even realize it. And then I was piecing it together. He was having all of these behavioral quote challenges at school, making friends because he kept hitting and scratching them. And I went to go observe him in his classroom. And I saw they were sitting around in a circle and they were playing like, it was like, like marbles. They were playing something with stuff that rolled and a marble rolled under his leg. And a friend went to go like grab it, like reach under his leg just to grab it. And then he lashed out and hit that kid. The teacher just turned around and was like, no hitting or like, you know, and so it's just a quick thing that like, if we paused and we really, really look and you knew that child had sensory challenges, I was able to see that was the imposed touch. That was the fight or flight system acting. So that hitting, that pushing away, scratching that child, that's the behavior, but it's not because he had a hard time sharing. It's not because he's a bad kid. It's not because he was just trying to be mean. It was because his brain was saying that there's something dangerous happening. I don't like the way that this feels. There's this imposed touch. And that's just how quick it can, it can look like that. Wow. So in that situation, if there's a child like that, what, what are some things that people can do to address that or to try and make it better? Cause it must be difficult if you're in a classroom situation. Yeah. So it always starts with education. You always educate the other caregivers or whoever's in that environment and the child themselves, if they're old enough to understand. So I always teach the sensory cup idea. And I, I think it's so important to educate our kids, like what's going on with their body. I think a lot of parents are so eager to help and parents will like implement strategies, but a lot of them are skipping the first step of like telling your kid, like, Hey, your body feels really, really nervous when there's too many people around you. I think your brain gets really scared if something touches your skin. Does that feel right? And usually they're like, yeah, like, how'd you know? Like, there's usually a moment of like connection and they're like, yeah, I don't like it when so-and-so like touches my arm. It, it hurts or it's itchy or it makes me feel scared, whatever it is. And so having that like acknowledged, I think goes a long way with the child. And then it's, it's a lot of emotional regulation. It's a lot of giving them the way to express what they need. And for like my daughter, I made a list of her triggers, things that I know will set her off. And every time we go into that situation, I have like a script, we talk about it. 
And I, if, if it involves another caregiver, I tell them, remember, like, you know, if she gets around, like there's too many kids, you need to keep a little eye on her and help her like take breaks. So for that child, I would, I taught him a lot about his personal space. I say, listen, when you're around too many people, if your body gets too close, you start feeling a little nervous. So next time it's, it's um, like corner time and you guys are playing this, make sure that your body is sitting like on your carpet square. And if, if you start seeing other people close to you, it's okay for you to take a break. Depending on the child, you might need to like enforce some like kind of planned breaks. So like in those kinds of environments, I usually will be like, time to take a water break and I will literally like have them just kind of move out from like the busy environment so they're taking a sip of water I'm like checking in with their body and I will say like how are you feeling everything good all right go back in and it's kind of just resetting them versus just having them sit in like that constant state of overstimulation if it's that environment so I'm assuming and of course my brain goes here but you don't do anything that would involve like desensitization no, you do. So you do. So oh, that, okay. so that strategy that I talk about is more of like direct, like in educating them so that you would tell them what's going on. These are your cognitive strategy tools, right? Taking, keeping your body away. These are the ways that you can adapt to the environment. When you work with a one-on-one occupational therapist, they do sensory integration in the clinic. And that's when they're really, really targeting it from like a bottom up approach from the brain, uh, the way that the brain processes sensory input. So when you work with an OT, they are offering sensory based integration and sensory challenges, and they're constantly adapting it so that you're, they're constantly modifying it so that the child can be successful. And it looks like play, but what it is, is it's providing your child with a lot of the sensory input that's, that's offensive to them and teaching them to kind of work through it in Mm. an adaptive way. So OTs do this a lot in the clinic, but the approach that I teach parents is still sort of like a top down approach, meaning that we're working from like the actual task and desensitizing them to the task using gradual exposure. So almost like it's not cognitive behavioral therapy, but it is a little bit of a mix of like uh, the psychology behind it. And my whole approach to it is to, so like, let's give an example of, of socks since we talk, and I talk about that a lot. If you know your child can't even wear socks or can wear socks for like a second, but then they have to like rip it off right away because they're either screaming, crying, or they just, they will not tolerate it your baseline level is wearing socks for a second. You need to find a way to get them to wear it for like a few seconds and then move up from there. And it's really, really that slow and gradual process, which for some parents is like painstaking, right? Mm. But like when you're considering the alternative that they will only wear it for a second or throw it off, or you're constantly forcing it on them. And then there's this like huge, huge, you know, meltdown, like fallout from it. Um, taking baby steps makes sense, especially when you understand the fight or flight system, that lower part of the brain that's, that's being triggered by the sensory sensitivity. So their brain is turning on and they're on survival mode. So that means they are running away from the socks. They're throwing it off. They might hit you. They're screaming, right? All of those behaviors that are just telling their body to survive this scary thing, which is socks. And so And, you know, every time you set off that fight or flight feeling, that survival mode, um, the brain kind of takes like a snapshot of what's going on in the environment. It's like, all right, I remember every time I'm here in this room and mom brings out those socks, 
something bad's going to happen and I don't like it. So your brain kind of just automatically turns it on in that context. So you're just constantly reinforcing it. So the idea is working your child up from wearing it for one second to like a few seconds without setting off the fight or flight mode. And you can do that by play, by Mm. doing fun things. So like, I always recommend parents like, okay, if your child can wear it for a second, then let's talk about, let's have them wear it for a few seconds, but you're not just going to sit there and say, Hey, Milo, put on the sock for three seconds. One, two, three, go. You put like, you would model it and you'd say like, Oh, let's put socks on our feet. And we're going to trace a circle in the carpet. And then we can take off our socks. Like, Oh, that was so silly. And then put it back on. And then maybe you will like, let's make like toe puppets, toe sock puppets with like the, the lights off. And then like we make shadows and like your turn, my turn, just like adding, finding ways to talk to have them wear the sock for the next time. But um, making it playful and fun and then work out to like a few minutes. Like maybe you do a dance party with their favorite song with the socks on and then you take it off or like rolling a dice. If it lands on let- on number six and we're going to wear it for six seconds, or we're going to do six jumping jacks. And then we take off the socks, like just super fun. But the, the key is to not have the fight or flight mode set off and to do it at times, like not when you're about to leave the house. Mm. Right. Not like where there's pressure to like, okay, well now you got to keep them on for an hour, even though I said you can take them off. So you have to really practice this as like a playful thing and practice it outside of the times that you actually need the task to happen. We should put the socks on Woody and Buzz. I feel like that would work. Yes. (laughs) Role play helps a lot. Yeah. The things that have helped me and hurt, like kids love racing. Kids love like who can put on their sock first. For our yes. kids, when it's hard, like fine motor wise, it's like you might have like dad put his sock on and you're like, okay, race mom, ready? One, two, three, go. Oh, you beat me. Like little things like that. They love that. The other magic trick is recording them with your like iPhone um, and then play it back to them, but play it in slow-mo, play it in reverse, play it in super fast speed. And they think that's hilarious. Like watching them put on a sock on backwards. And it really is looking at it from like a baby steps thing until you work up to wearing the socks like outside. But the other big tip that I offer parents is when they're doing something with sensory sensitivity, Try to add in heavy work, which is like a very calming input to the nervous system. So heavy work is part of like something called proprioception, which is one of our eight senses. And it's any input to our muscles and tendons and joints. So anytime you push, pull or carry or jump, you're activating the proprioceptive system, which is calming. So for adults, that's like yoga. That's like anytime we're lifting, that's like, that's why you get like that really calming effect. So chewing gum, anything, uh, there's a lot of proprioceptive receptors in the jaw. So that's why sucking and chewing are highly regulating. Mm, That's why those are extremely hard to replace. Yeah. No kidding. (laughs) Not looking forward to that. (laughs) Yeah. So, so that's why when they're like wearing socks, they'll be like, do jumping jacks, do like something fun because it distracts them and they're moving, but it's also giving them that like calming input. Um, and that proprioceptive heavy work can kind of, um, like cancel out the sensitivity. Ah, mm, the first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. 
Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive, sought-after, rare, and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com. If a child has either sensory processing disorder or issues with sensory sensitivity, what does that look like as they get older? And is this something that continues into adulthood or does it go away? Yeah. So what we say typically is sensory processing disorder is like, it's a lifelong thing, right? It's the way that your brain is wired. But as we know, um, earlier intervention, and I think, what is it age? You might know better than me, like to age seven, when the brain is like most plastic, right? When mm. you can still re, um, rewire things, you can kind of mold, they can learn a lot more things. So they can kind of restructure those pathways that are, that are telling them that like, this feels sensitive. If you get early intervention, there's still a lot of opportunity to, to change the way that they process sensory input. In general, like there's a lot of adults now who are like self-diagnosed SPD because back then, like it was really not a thing and, you know, we're fine, we're functioning, but we're realizing now like, whoa, like it was really hard when I went to like family parties, that was way too overstimulating. I remember feeling so anxious around there. I thought I was just shy. I thought it was this, but we've found ways to cope. So Mm -hmm. like, let's say like a child who's sensory sensitive, they might grow up and end up working like a typical nine to five, like office job away from a lot of people, right? They don't like the sounds of people. They don't like talking to people. They don't like all of the extra sensory input. And they like a very controlled environment, very structured routine that helps them process sensory input easily. And maybe they're the kind of people who knows that they have to bring their own food to the family party because they're not going to eat what food is there but they're still going to the party. They're not like melting down when they smell the food, right? They find ways to adapt and you find as you get older. And you know, if we do our job as parents, caregivers, therapists, uh, we teach our kids what sensory input and what strategies can really make their bodies feel good. Like, that's why I'm always telling Liliana, like when you take deep breaths, I see your body being so calm. Like I notice your body moves a little slower and your voice gets a little calmer. And now she does it more independently than ever. Right. So she'll grow up and know, like, I need to take deep breaths or there's people who like learn, I can't do big lecture halls. I have to do smaller class sizes, or I cannot go to 7am classes. I am never going to be a morning person. Like I will always do this, or I'm a sensory seeker. I know I need to get up and go to the gym for an hour before I sit down at work. Hmm. Like these are all things that we we've figured out that our body needs, whether or not we have sensory processing disorder, but it's the same thing. Everyone just needs different input and you just become more of an expert at what you need to make you more as uh, functional as possible in, you know, in your adult life as well. So for your daughter, does she get sensory overload near the end of the day? Or, you know, if you brought her to the mall or somewhere, how, what does that look like? If, if yeah. they're so sensitive to sensory input, do you mm-hmm. find late afternoon she needs to be in a quiet space or yeah. do you have to like monitor your days kind of? Yeah. So I am constantly thinking in my head of her sensory cup. Like I literally have a visual of it. I'm like, okay, we are like, this is a perfect example. It's my husband's birthday. The other day we went to the beach. She, she started to love the beach, which is new. She used to like not love the sand because she's so over responsive to the touch of it, but she loved it. And these are, so, this is so common for, for sensory sensitive kids. They, they can 
really want to go and want to participate and be there and get through it and hold it together. This is the same thing at school. You're there. We're like, oh, great. She's like playing with the sand. She's not even melting down there. But later what happens is like she's going home with like filled to the brim sensory cup and the tiniest little thing will overflow it. And so that's like my example of like the blue cup, right? So you have kids who go to sensory sensitive kids who go to school, assuming we're not in a pandemic and they're in the classroom, they're dealing with sights, smells of lunch, the sounds of scooting chairs, sounds of a lot of kids, imposed touch as kids like bump into you, you know, like all of the things, but they look like the good kid at school. Like they're not a sensory seeker. They're not moving around. They're following instructions, but inside they're like, oh my God, like I'm holding this together because I don't want to cry in school or I don't want to get in trouble. I don't want all the attention on me. The second you like get home, mom's Mm -hmm. like, all right, here's your snack. You put it in the blue cup and like that kid really wanted the green cup. And then they just have like a complete meltdown. And you're like, it's just a cup. Like, what's the Mm. big deal? Blue is the same as green, not a big deal. Like, why are you freaking out for no reason, right? But if you like rewound their day and you, you like visualize a drop into their cup for every little thing, and then they get home, they're expecting one thing, which for sensory sensitive kid routine and consistency and control of the environment is so important because they've learned to adapt and to process things that are similar and familiar. And the one thing that if you change it or it's something that they weren't expecting now, all of a sudden their brain has to like, well, now I have to process the green cup. Now that's a little different and you're making me work harder. And I've already worked so hard all day. I cannot handle another thing. And that's the meltdown. So it's not about the blue cup. I'm sure they melt down at home too, because that's where they're comfortable. And it makes me think about when Milo first started daycare for a little while, as soon as he would set eyes on my husband or me to pick him up, he would start bawling. Crying. And yep. I felt so bad. And then the daycare, um, one of his teachers was like, sometimes that can happen because you guys are his safe space. So yep. he's been, you know, keeping it together all day, all day, anxious. Yep. It's a new place, new people. And then as soon as he sees you, he just lets out all his emotions. And I was like, yep. oh my God, that's so sad. <laughs> Yeah, that's definitely a part of it. Yeah, it makes sense because yeah, yeah, they've been holding it together. And for whatever reason, like I cannot hold it together one more second. And definitely Mm -hmm. she has way more behaviors, behaviors with me than my husband, because she knows that I regulate her the most because Mm. she knows that I listen to her body and I like help her take deep breaths. And so, you know, it's just like you, like us, like we have a bad day, we get home and it's like, someone ate the last piece of like cake and we're like I was oh, yeah. dreaming of that cake and now it's how dare it's like, you how dare you right like it's it's the same thing it's the last straw or like we pick up the phone to call our friend and they ask how are you and you just like drip yeah, right exactly. it's just like the, it's just yeah. kind of the last thing so there's a big emotional piece to it but yeah like the other day so she was fine at the beach then we came home and we were driving home and she was like the radio's too loud turn it down stop talking your voices are loud And like, it was like, I was like, oh, the meltdown's like going to happen. And we finally got her home. But yeah, she needs constant like resetting times throughout the day, like quiet times. And she will just love sitting like in the dark almost in her room. And like sometimes looking at books, sometimes she'll just say, can I go lay down? Like, and she just really knows that her body needs to like reset where, you know, if you had a seeker, they would be like, can I go outside and like jump on the trampoline? Like they, everyone knows what their body needs, but if you don't give them those tools, like if I didn't tell her that she has a safe space in her room, like made her a cozy corner, or if you don't provide 
an activity. It doesn't have to be a trampoline, but if you don't tell that your child and you show them that your body needs to move, so we need to do this, then it looks like the sensory sensitive kid might just cry or like feel so uncomfortable. I don't know what I need. Or the sensory seeker might just be like running around, zipping, jumping over couches and like doing things. And they're like, I don't know what I need, but I just need to move. So we need to teach them like more functional ways to still get that input, but not saying like, stop crying or sit still because it's, it's not, it's, that's not going to be helpful. And to try and understand why these things are happening it makes me so sad to think that kids are struggling with these things and parents are just brushing it off, assuming yeah. that they're being bad or maybe all they need is to go sit in their room and have quiet time and learn how to have quiet time or go outside and play or, you know. Yeah, and uh, I think it really just stems from just the lack of um, education because like we are, you know, the, the uh, OT field is fighting so hard to raise more awareness for it. But that's when I get so much light bulbs and parents, when I talk about this, they're like, well, that makes me feel so much better. Like I wish that my son's teacher knew that, or I wish my mother-in-law knew that, or I wish my so-and-so because like, they think my kid is bad or they think I need to do better disciplining. And they know once I say these things, they're piecing it together. Like, yep, my kid definitely has sensory challenges. And this has, this is what's been going on the whole time. And I think the whole, I don't know what the culture's like in Canada or what, how they work with sensory processing disorder, but there's still, I don't want to say stigma, but I think people think that sensory processing disorder is still like a buzz term and that it's like overused and that some people are just like throwing it out there willy nilly. But the problem is then there's, there's a lot of wait and see happening that I think some, some medical professionals mean well, like they're trying to, you know, put our minds at ease as parents, like, oh, those are typical toddler stuff. Like I, as an OT had to go back three times to my pediatrician to ask for an evaluation by a third party OT. Cause I was like, there is something going on. And she still did not want to like feed into that for me. She was like, this is how toddlers are. I'm like, no, like you're not understanding. It took me three times. And I'm an OT. Like I, for some, for some reason have like a handicap to assessing my own child. People think I'm like making a big deal, but you know, if you're a parent who doesn't have the education and you bring this up once and your medical, your trusted medical professional is like not a big deal, then parents like, cool, don't have to worry about it. But then, you know, if it continues and it persists and then you miss that window of early intervention, Um, you wait and like, if I drag it out, like, okay, let's, let's wait and see until the next milestone checkup until like six months. And then maybe the pediatrician is, or who, whatever your medical professional is, is like, okay, well, I'll refer to an eval for an evaluation. Then there's a wait list to get the eval. And then when you get the eval, then there's a wait list for treatment. And it's like, now you've dragged it on for a whole year for something that the parent has brought up a year and a half ago. Right. And that's the work. That's like the worst case scenario. I don't want to put like a rainy cloud over everything. And not all pediatricians are like this. And, you know, they are not saying that they don't mean well. I just feel like there should be more of a push for ruling out sensory Mm. processing challenges. Like what is the harm in referring to an OT just to see what's going on? Right. Um, Besides just like saying like, oh, she's having meltdowns and that's typical. Is there, I don't know if you have an answer for this, but is there a physiological explanation for sensory processing disorder or is it thought of as mental? 
So there are um, MRI studies. There's research. That's the thing that's frustrating. Okay. So there is research behind it, but the, I don't understand. A lot of people don't understand why it's not its own thing. We're hoping for DSM-6 for it to be in there. But there are brain studies that show a, a difference in white matter and the way that the brain is structured and um, between kids who are suspected to just have SPD versus kids with, um, I think it's ADHD and kids with autism, I think, and kids with no, no problems. Um, there is some difference there. I haven't read that research study in a while, so I don't want to get quoted, but there is brain function differences in children who are suspected to have SPD. And I say suspected because we have screening questionnaires and things that show that they might be a little bit more atypical in their sensory responses. And so those kids matched up with showing differences in their brain structure. They also have uh, the sweat tests, like when they put, is it electrodermal? I forget what it's called, but they have, they put some sensors on your skin and they test your stress level, your, mm. um, response to stimuli. And so they did this with kids. They played like, um, auditory sounds. And I think some, they had them do some tactile touch and they noticed an increase in sweat response. So mm. it's like a real, like physiological response. And so, there, there are some biological markers and things like that that are showing. And then in addition to some of these like cognitive challenges and these other things that they, that can be disguised as just behaviors or toddler things, but they, there is research in that. People with SPD, sensory processing disorder, is it likely to occur with another issue or are, is it like, because I know you're saying it's not a standalone thing in the DSM. So that's why I'm wondering, is it very um, common in kids with autism or is that why it's not its own thing? Yes. So it's very common in kids with autism. So not all autistic kids have sensory processing disorder, but a lot of them do. Mm. A lot of them do. There's a big chance that they do. So, and they could, they could be seekers. They could be avoiders. They could be any of it. Right. Um, a lot of kids who have anxiety are more of the sensory avoiders. They are like my daughter, she's got mm. both. Um, and it can really look very, very similar, like super, super similar. So it's hard to almost, um, separate and ADHD kids. A lot of them can look can have sensory seeking behaviors. These are Mm. the kids that are hyperactive and they're moving a lot and they're needing a lot of that input. So it definitely can look like and be a part of those three things. But I have worked with kids who like did not qualify for any of those diagnoses, um, those criteria, but they were having such significant impacts at school and at home. And I'm thinking like, how on earth are you not getting any support? How can insurance not cover this when you're eating like three foods Mm. and you can't even focus in class. And like, this is what your, you know, your drawing of a house looks like because you can't focus because you haven't processed all this. Cause you're like, there's so many things that I'm like, and this, these are, these are the kids that need the help too, right? Like they're, they're slipping through the cracks Mm. and their parents are stuck with nothing because sometimes parents don't even understand or know that OT is an option, whether or not they're, they get the referral, they could pay for it out of pocket, but like, how do they hear about what even sensory is or even what OT is because we are so hidden. Mm -hmm. So that's where I think the, that's the like pro social media and like having such a wide reach is just like constantly putting that out there. So hopefully a mom friend or a parent or someone be like, Oh, like, you know, have you ever looked into this? I've heard that this could be related because the last thing I want, like I hate parents feeling isolated and like feeling like it's your fault, Mm -hmm. you know, and then like resorting to like some, 
discipline or things that like timeouts and things like that. Like there's a whole culture now that goes against all of that just in general, right? Like positive parenting and all of that. But even for sensory kids, like those strategies, like they just don't work because it's not within the child's control. Like their body is telling them that they need something or that they can't handle something and like punishing them for that or like trying to teach them in like another way that's unrelated is it's not working. Yeah. It's one of those things where, you know, something is wrong and it would be nice to know what it was so that you could have a plan of action and understand how best to deal with it. It's, you know, if you've been having a sore stomach for years and you do all these tests, I don't know. I can't find anything. Can't find anything. You're like, Oh my God, please just find something. Give me an answer. Yes. I know. Yeah. And that's the, that's the thing with it, that parents will find me and they're like, well, I went to my doctor and he said that my son, my son doesn't have autism. So that's all they said. Like, okay, so what does that do? Like, that's, you know, that's not enough. So, okay. So he doesn't have autism. So what are, what are our other options? What does this look like? Because I know as a mom, this is not typical. Mm -hmm. I know that this doesn't feel right. I know that it should not be this hard to get, like, it shouldn't be taking me two hours to like feed my child every day. He shouldn't, he shouldn't only be eating, you know, Ritz crackers for three meals a day. I'm just curious. You said your daughter has anxiety. What does that look like in a toddler? Cause you said she's three yeah. and a half. She's three and a half. So, so she doesn't have the anxiety as much where it's like, I'm worried something scary is going to get me. Not like that kind of anxiety. It's more of um, anxiety when like things are out of her control. So right now her biggest theme of anxiety is like scarcity. So like I'll put food out in front of her and she'll say, can I have more? And I'm like, yes, when you finish it. But like every time she takes a bite, she wants the the bowl like filled like a little Mm. bit more. And what her anxiety comes out as is really, really, really big meltdowns. And she cannot come out of them. Like it takes like our meltdowns are like 30 to 90 minutes. There was a time when she was Milo's age, she was having three of those a day biting her hand, hitting her head. Like I took her to the ER one week. Cause I was like, there's something wrong with you. Like medically there's something going on. Like tell me. And like, there wasn't. Um, mm. So it's just very, very, very big meltdowns and things that are out of her control. She's recently started to do like, did you turn off all the lights? Like now like adult type anxiety, OCD stuff almost. Mm-hmm. Um, but she just really needs constant reassurance. She'll get anxious around a lot of people, but it can really tie into the, um, the sensory piece. Cause it's loud, but she definitely has like a social anxiety around a lot of people and her anxiety comes out as she'll hit me or she'll just like scream no. And she'll just get like very, like just regulated and just not know how to deal with it. So we just deal with a lot of, a lot of meltdowns. Wow. Yeah. That must be difficult. Even just with little tantrums, I always say five, like a five minute tantrum feels I think I saw that hours. I, I saw you post and you're like, Oh, we made it through. It was like a five minutes of that. And I was like, is she saying that like in a good way or a bad way? Cause like five minutes is like cake to me. Yeah. No because kidding. like, I mean, and it's like, when I say it's full on, it's like, sometimes I have to hold her in like what we call a therapeutic hold. I have to like hold her really, really tight because she's hitting me. She's like full, like fist punching. And that's the one that if she does that in public or around other caregivers, that's when they say like, you should be disciplining her. You need to teach her that she can't hit, but it's like, you talk to her when she's not doing that. And she is so remorseful. And she's like, I don't know why I did that. Like it hurts. I don't want to hurt mommy. Like she knows. And I know for sure it's not within her control. So it's just, it's hard. It's like this week, we've been having a lot of them a lot of them. And so we've gotten to a point where it was like, we got down to like maybe one a week meltdowns. Now it's back to like every other day. Um, it just kind of like goes up and down. 
And so is that something that you think she will eventually grow out of? Because I'm just thinking as kids get older, you know, you can't really throw these massive tantrums or be hitting people, especially as a teenager or something. Yeah. So I guess they just learn like the coping skills to deal with. I think it's going to take work. I think she definitely needs to see. That's why I'm like in the process right now of um, finding a play therapist right now because she's young. So I think we're going to work with an LMFT, a marriage and family therapist who we worked with in the Bay. But I've been advised by um, Natasha Daniels. She's like my go-to. She's a guru on like Instagram and Facebook. She teaches on anxiety and OCD. Um, I was asking her and she was saying that, um, you know, as she gets older, that CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy would be helpful for her. Mm -hmm. So right now, what I do is I talk to her a lot about it though. I teach her about it. She's not too young. I talk to her about her worry bug about feeding her worry bug. It's getting too big. And we don't want the worry bug to get too big. We want him to shrink and go away. And like, like when, when she asks those questions, I'm like, your brain is starting to feed the worry bug. Tell your brain, you know, the answers. And so she'll go, you know, the answers brain, stop asking mommy. Like, you know, um, because that's just like a loop. If she asks me and I don't answer her, it's just constant. So, but that's what I learned from Natasha Daniels. And she was saying like, if we are constantly the person to reassure them and say, yes, I'm turning out the lights. Like, you know, if we are the person that's putting out that flame, they're going to always rely on something external to that. They need to learn that they can tell their brains, like, stop worrying about it. It's not a big deal. If I'm the one that tells her that and constantly reassures her and makes her feel safe in that moment, then she's going to rely on that later. Like, and we're not going to be there over their shoulder to be like, don't worry, babe. Like you're fine. You're going to be okay. She needs to be able to have those tools to tell herself it's not a big deal. I can do this, but it has to come from her. So like we have a cue now, like I'll like point to my forehead. I'll be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So what are your three resources? I know you mentioned, um, that one in Natasha Daniels, I think you said, I'll put that in the episode notes for sure. But do you have other resources for parents that you would recommend? Yes. So if you suspect your child has sensory processing challenges, if what I was saying today kind of resonated with you and you want to know more, I always recommend starting with um, starcenterspd.org. And I can give that to you um, for you to add in the show notes. Um, But they have so many resources. They are kind of like the gold standard for sensory processing. They have courses for parents. They have all of that. Um, There's also a book that I always recommend to parents. Um, beginning your SPD journey or just wanting to learn more about it. It's called The Out of Sync Child. And that's from Carol Kranowitz. Okay. Um, trying to think. I think those are my two main ones. And if you, yeah, if you have a child who has anxiety, OCD, and like the SPD, you know, like the trifecta of all three of them, or you're worried about it, or you're wondering, um, you can check out Natasha Daniels. I think on Instagram, she is AT Parenting Survival. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. And we, she and I did a Instagram live where we talked about the overlap between SPD and anxiety. So if you want to see that, that's on her page, I think. Um, and then my page, I give a lot of resources for parents. I'm at the OT butterfly on Instagram. I just closed the membership to my, uh, the close the doors to my parent membership, but we'll be launching again. I have a membership for parents of sensory sensitive children, where I teach you that kind of stepwise progression of how to desensitize your child or ex- gradually expose them to ser- something and teach you like how you can best regulate them. Um, so you can find that at the otbutterfly.com slash wait list. If you want to get on the wait list and kind of understand that, but I'm on Instagram, like all the time. Yeah. I noticed that. (laughs) (laughs) 
I know who's on Instagram. I know who's Instagram. I'm always on it too. Yeah, I'm like, you too, you too. Yeah. Oh, geez, Louise. All right. Well, this is such a good episode. I'm excited to put it out there. Uh, thank you so much for talking with me. I'm very jealous that you're in warm weather, by the way. 